Over the weekend, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, making a surprise visit to Ukraine. He met with President Zelensky and also announced some additional aid. Also making a surprise visit, did you see this? Bono and the Edge. That's right, uh, one half of U2 performed a surprise concert in a subway station turned bomb shelter in Kiev. Have a listen. There's Bono and Edge performing a 40-minute concert for some 100 people gathered at the metro station. Bono saying at one point, telling those assembled that your president leads the world in the cause of freedom right now. The people of Ukraine are not just fighting for your own freedom. You're fighting for all of us who love freedom. That's a Bono during that uh, concert yesterday. Meanwhile, our Russian president, Vladimir Putin, he delivered a speech earlier today during what is known as the Victory Day uh, military parade in Russia. Here's a Global's Redmond Shannon with more on that. President Putin again drew parallels between this war, which he says is fighting against a Nazi government, something that is blatantly not the case, um, to par- draw parallels to the Second World War, where the Soviet Union helped to defeat a Nazi government. So he was expected that it might be the case that today he would perhaps reclassify this attack as perhaps a full-blown war, a a, a full-scale invasion above the so-called special military operation. But he didn't do that and he didn't declare any type of victory because the city of Mariupol there remains, of course, a number of uh, of Ukrainian soldiers hold up in that steel plant um, there. So there wasn't anything to declare victory for, despite Russia's gains inside Ukraine. He said his soldiers are defending the motherland. All right, let's turn now to Irvin Student, founder of Global Brief magazine, president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions. His latest book is entitled Canada Must Think for Itself. And Irvin joins us once again here in the program. Irvin, appreciate the time and good afternoon. Good to be with you, Jeff. All right. Uh, one of the bigger headlines coming out of today's speech is that Vladimir Putin did not issue any new threats to Ukraine. Just uh, how big is that and what more, Irvin, can you tell us uh, about the speech? I think it's um, it's major news, I think, for the West, probably within Russia and Ukraine. They were expecting uh, what what uh came to be what came to pass that is not not huge value added in the speech really a rally to his country to mobilize patriotic forces just as Zelensky did to his country and it'll be a grind for the foreseeable future i think historically putin's instinct has been cautious and and but few for a few event adventures here and there so this is much more par for the putin course uh what's in his mind right now is uh, to be divine still, I think there's a big succession question uh, around the, the bend, around who uh, ends up taking the reins of power in Russia in the coming years. He's not well, the war is not going well, the internal rambunctiousness is, is growing. So that's a huge question that looms over this entire conflict. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you what sort of insights could be gleaned from Vladimir Putin's words earlier today at this uh, Victory Day military parade, because analysis uh, that I have read suggests he didn't really uh, offer to those assembled any sort of roadmap towards a victory. But he did uh, acknowledge that uh, there was a cost to this uh, invasion when it comes to uh, Russian soldiers and uh, Russian uh, lives. So, Irvin, do we have a better sense today of just where Putin and Russia, where they are when it comes to this invasion? I think the Russian and Ukrainian imagination are, are longer term than, than, than ours in the West. So we operate by tweets and we imagine that every new speech will give a new policy deliverable and that victory is around the bend. But remember that these are countries that used to be part of one country and they, they allude to the, the victory in the Second World War as in, in both cases as, as a major uh, patriotic victory. And of course, they both have claims to that. Uh, legitimacy. The point is that they're used to grind and they're used to long-term battles, uh, significant calamity, and actually it's the good times that are more the exception than the rule, whereas for us, the rule is the good times rather than the exceptional bad times. So I I don't think there is much to be gleaned from uh, that. I think the Russians are out of options and they're imagining that they're in there for the long run. The problem is, as I mentioned, that this question of succession, actually for Zelensky as well, looms over the future of, of, of the conflict in both countries. If there is a successor in in Russia, will he, it'll be a he, will he be able to uh, change course in the war, will control the legitimacy um, of the government across Russia, control external respect? This is a huge, huge question for the biggest country in the world. Yeah, there's been lots of speculation, of course, about Vladimir Putin's health and about possible succession, as you talk about here, Irvin. Do we have an idea of who might uh, succeed uh, Putin and just how that might change things when it comes to Russia and Ukraine? I think the answer from the outside is no, but the the de facto direction of the country will not change significantly. That's essential for us to understand. If the government survives, and if it doesn't survive, mind you, uh, we're in for a world of pain for many decades on end, because if Russia unravels, then it takes many other countries, including Ukraine, with it. But if, it, if the government survives a succession, which is not obvious, it'll be either status quo or an even harder um, direction vis-a-vis the West and any possibly Ukraine. The only thing it is, it'll have new energy and perhaps new ambition, maybe some rhetorical flourishes for the West, but I don't think it will be our friend in in the sense that we might appreciate. All right. Turning to our prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, as I mentioned off the top, he had a surprise visit to Ukraine over the weekend. And part of that visit, he said Putin is responsible for, quote, heinous war crimes. Can you talk to us a bit, Irvin, about the significance of that statement? Um, well, with the greatest respect to our prime minister, he, he's right on, on war crimes. He, he, um, uh, there are certainly war crimes being committed. I, uh, I don't have any additional insight other than suggesting that there must be very robust and inve- independent investigation of war crimes across the theater. On the prime ministerial side, unfortunately, he brings little value added in analytics and rhetoric. We don't have our own independent voice vis-a-vis Ukraine or vis-a-vis Russia or or most of the theaters, and we haven't for for a significant while. So he does seem out of his element, very robotic, and I don't think the expectations are high from the Ukrainian or Russian side. However, in pure policy terms, we as a country, Canada, have huge 
capital to offer the conflict and, and the future of, of Ukraine, of Russia, of that region, first of all, on refugees and Ukrainians that have suffered during the war. And mind you, Russians also that, that have suffered. Uh, we've taken in very, very few compared to with neighboring countries, compared with um, Poland, Moldova, Hungary, even Bulgaria, Israel, several other countries. Where is our 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 bang for for our, our rhetorical buck? Secondly, we have to have a diplomatic vision for the settlement of this conflict, and that, that's essential. And I've mentioned before on your distinguished show that that we're not the ones to broker the conflict, but we can push towards that. It will be Asian countries, Israel, China, India that that play the the lead role. But we have to push towards that rather than just pushing in, in, in one direction. And finally, we have to have a vision for the post-war, uh, post-military settlement. What does reconstruction, specifically of Ukraine, look like, but also stabilization of Russia? We're, in the end, interested in a stable region, uh, an independent Ukraine, but a Russia that is stable, because in the end, we have to have our, our own mental map. Russia is immediately to our north, so we can't have an unstable Russia immediately across the northern border that will transfer the misery of ukraine to the misery of canada just finally Irvin, wanted to ask you about uh, the additional aid that was promised by the prime minister in his trip uh, yesterday some 50 million dollars in additional military assistance we understand that's going to include uh, drones high resolution satellite uh, imagery wanted to ask you about that get your take on that and also the significance of uh, raising the flag uh, yesterday three months uh, after the canadian embassy in kiev was uh, closed down it was uh, reopened i think our military aid is is negligible so it's not much to to discuss there it's largely symbolic and the ukrainians are fighting on their own heroism and 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 um, military culture so they're, they're doing uh, fine whether we add to it or not. That's not our, our major play, as I mentioned. In terms of the embassy, that is a significant play for, for Canada. For your distinguished viewers, let me emphasize that while we imagine ourselves to be uh, highly implicated in, in either Ukraine or the region and, and strongly uh, for one side and against the other in this conflict, our understanding is minimal because our diplomatic relationships are very superficial. In the entire former Soviet space, there are 15 countries, including Russia and Ukraine. We have embassies in only six of those 15 countries, six of the 15. And until recently, the Ukraine embassy, our embassy in Ukraine had shut down. So we need to maximize our diplomatic presence on the ground, and specifically in countries that are uncomfortable, like Russia, like Belarus, uh, like Kyrgyzstan. All of these countries, we need to have an orbit of diplomatic coverage, intelligence coverage, so that we understand that we have a role to play. If we're mimicking other big countries and we're only dealing with the like-minded, then the diplomatic play is negligible. We're in the end talking to ourselves and, and wasting money. All right. I got to leave it there for now. Irvin, always appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks for this. Appreciate you speaking with us. Have a great week. You too. Irvin Student is the founder of Global Brief Magazine, president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions. And again, his latest book is Canada Must Think for Itself. And we're back after this break. Stay with us. You're listening to The Jeff MacArthur Show.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.